Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray that the Lord speaks to you as you hear from His Word today. Through all the pictures of the home, friendships, the work, the community, Christians are called to do life with other Christians. We're actually called to do life with other spiritual friends. And so this morning as we jump into chapter 4, starting in verse 1, today's message is a snapshot of unity. We're going to see how God invites us to live lives of unity with one another as followers of Jesus. And so as we get started, I want to ask you a few questions that I hope will, will help maybe get your brain working a little bit as we jump into God's Word. The first question is this, have you ever been part of a team, a family, A club, a class, a church, or a work environment where everyone was unified? Have you ever been a part of anything that came close to that? Now, you guys, wow, a lot of of no's. Maybe a few of you have. If you have, what did you enjoy about it and what made it so unified? So for the two or three of you who have, you can answer that question uh, in your heart. Now I'll ask this question. Have you ever been part of a team, family, club, class, church, or work environment where everyone was not unified? How many of us have been a part of something like that? Yeah, most of us have. What did that feel like? And why was it not unified? What I'm going to do today, it's really simple. We're going to work through Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16 quickly. And then I'm going to give you one main point that I'm convinced will be the key to our unity as a church. I believe it'll be the key to your unity in your family. Actually, it'll, it'll be the key to your legacy when it comes to how people remember you at work, how your children remember you, how your friends and family remember you. And so I'll save that towards the end of the sermon, but we'll go ahead and dive into chapter 1 or chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Paul is a prisoner in Rome. Most likely, he's in house arrest. It's possible that he was in a Roman prison cell, but he was there for preaching the gospel. But not only is he a literal prisoner, many times Paul referred to himself as a spiritual prisoner in chains, in bonds, for Jesus' sake. He's saying, willingly, I give myself to whatever the Lord wants to do with me, even if it's prison, because I am going to communicate the gospel, specifically in the city of Rome. Now think with me back through history of all the good things that have come because someone was put in prison unjustly. I'm thinking of Martin Luther, who gave us the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, from a German prison cell. I'm thinking of Martin Luther King Jr. who wrote his famous letter from a Birmingham jail. Diedrich Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote The Cost of Discipleship and Life Together from a Berlin prison because he refused to back down from the Nazi party and the Nazification of the German Protestant church. And so from prison, Paul writes this letter and he says, therefore, or the NIV says, then. If you underline in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline the four-letter word then or therefore in verse 1 because it's like the hinge that connects chapters 1 through 3 with chapters 4 through 6. 
So on this side of the pulpit, remember, just pretend like this is chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, and on this side is chapters 4 through 6. This table represents the then or the therefore. Paul says, because of everything you have in Jesus, therefore, because of that, live this way. This is the why, this is the what, and the how. And so last fall, we talked a ton about the why. And I would encourage you, if you missed any of those messages or missed that Bible study, you can get it all online for free. Check it out. Because it's important that we not jump to the what and the how until we understand the why. But here in verse 1, he says, therefore, he's going to launch us into the, the how and the what. He says, I urge you, I urge you, I strongly encourage you, the word you here isn't you individually. This letter isn't written to individuals. It's actually second person plural. It's written to us collectively. So in West Virginian language, it would be y'all. Paul is saying, y'all, I have something to tell you all. It's plural. He says, live a life worthy of your calling. Now, this is the primary command in chapter 4. Some would say it's the primary command in this latter half of the book of Ephesians. The word live your life could also be translated walk. It's actually translated many times in the Bible as walk, but the NIV for some reason chose to translate it as live your life. We might use this word in our vernacular today to refer to the Christian journey. It's kind of cool to talk about your journey through life, even if you are a, a Christian or not a Christian. But it's actually a biblical concept. What Paul is saying here is you're, you're embarking on a journey of faith after you decide to believe in Jesus. You see, the gospel doesn't end the moment you believe and you want Jesus to save you. Actually, the gospel's impact just begins. I love what Jesus said to his disciples when he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It's a transformative process. So this life is a journey. You know, think about the benefits. I'll ask you, what are the benefits of seeing the Christian life as a journey as opposed to a destination? Can you think of some of the benefits? Think of the benefits with your friends. Think of the grace that you can show your friends if you realize they're on the same journey that you're on. Think of how it'll affect parenting. You know, you have one of those days where you feel like your kids have made all the wrong decisions, they haven't done anything you've taught them, and they act like they could care less. But if you see life as a journey, it's like, okay, well, this is just a bad season. This is just a bad bump in the road. We're still on the journey. As your pastor, I don't really care so much as to where you are in the journey because I'm still on the journey with you. I'm growing under the under-shepherd of Jesus just like you are, but what I'm most concerned with is the direction your feet are pointing. It's most important your feet are pointed in the right direction towards Jesus, growing to be more and more like Him. And so he says here in verse 1, live your life worthy. Live a life that measures up to the gospel. Paul can't help himself at the end of verse 1. And I'm just going to briefly mention it. At the end of verse 1, he says, live life worthy of the calling you have received. This guy can't help himself but keep pointing back to the calling that we taught about from Ephesians chapter 1. 
If you missed that message, you can go back to September 29th of last year. We talked about what it means to be called by God. It's this, we can't fully wrap our minds around it, but God opens our heart to faith. And so he says, because of that calling, verse 2, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Now, something that really struck me this week that I hope will will encourage and also challenge you, and that is verse 2 is impossible to do on your own. We might think we can do verse 2 on our own, but really the rest of the chapters, 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians, we can't do on our own. See, I used to think I was humble and patient and gentle until I started living life with other people. Right When I finally, for some of you students, you, you remember when you first went off to college or, or, or you first got married or you first entered that community group or the first time you had children, I really thought I was a humble dude, right? The humblest of all. I, that was supposed to be a joke. But I really thought, I, I thought I was gentle. I thought I was patient. And then other people enter your life and you realize I'm a Neanderthal, Right? Because God says, as we live life with spiritual friends, it's, it's, it's not on par with the Bible, but it's definitely up there. It's a tool that God uses to make us more into the image of Christ. He says, be humble, be of a lowly mind. This isn't self-deprecation or self-abuse, but it's just having an honest view of yourself. For us to know our limitations, know our strengths, but also to know our limitations. Be gentle. This is an outward expression of humility. This is strength under control. It's the ability to handle sensitive relationships with care. You know, Moses was a gentle or meek individual. The Old Testament and even in the New Testament, we find that Moses was the meekest man in all the earth. Jesus was gentle Gentility is is a fruit of the Spirit. And so he says here in verse 2, not just be gentle, but also be patient. If you're taking notes, you might write beside verse 2, be patient means to be long-fused. Not short-fused, but but to to allow space and time for others to grow or to allow space and time before you hit the eject button. Have you ever been around somebody that every time something goes wrong, they're just ready to hit the eject button? I mean, they talk about, man, if I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave this home, I'm going to leave this church, I'm going to leave this community group, I'm going to leave this family, I'm going to leave this community, whatever it is, somebody always threatening, if something doesn't go right, they are tapping out. And what God encourages us to do is, yes, be honest, and yes, express where we're hurting, and yes, express where some things might need to change, but let's not always be the people who are threatening the eject button, but for us to suffer long, to bear with one another in love, verse 2, to literally hold ourselves back, to show tolerance for one another in love, to put up with each other's differences, to put up with each other's personalities, each other's attitudes, to put up with someone else when they rub you the wrong way. You know, really, in every environment, there's going to be somebody to rub you the wrong way. I mean, even if you were to, to move to a deserted island, eventually you'd rub yourself the wrong way, right? Like, you, you would offend yourself. 
if, if you're the type of person who says, maybe you disagree with that statement, maybe you think that, well, you know, really, I, I don't see people in life. There's, there's not always somebody who, who is offensive. It very well could be that you are that person, right? And so God invites us to, to lean in and to bear with one another. Verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, I learned something this week about this word, make every effort. It means to, to spare no effort, to strive for it, to make something a matter of extreme importance of life or death. This word was used by Roman trainers when they were sending their gladiators into the arena. It was make every effort. It doesn't mean, well, do your best and hope everything works out. It means make every effort. Tim Keller writes this, even though we have the life of the Trinity in us, we live in spiritual immaturity until we do the hard work of creating unity in the church. And so he says, make every effort to maintain, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, this unity of the Spirit, thankfully, came to us for free. We didn't have to do anything to earn the Spirit. We put our faith in Christ, and even that was a gift. He gave us the gift of salvation, and so we were made part of the body of Christ. That was free. But he says we are called to preserve this unity and work hard for it. Just imagine today that somebody comes up to you after church and they give you a yacht for free. It can be as big as you want it to be, right? They give you a yacht for free. No questions asked. It is yours. You can take it out on the Canal River. You can take it out in the ocean, wherever you want to take it up to Burnsville if you want. You can take it wherever you want, right? Even though it's free, let me ask you this. Will it cost you anything to maintain that yacht? Absolutely. It'll cost a lot of money. It'll cost a lot of time. It'll cost a lot of elbow grease. And so what God is saying in this passage is your salvation is free. Your peace with, with the Spirit and with one another is free, but you've got to work to maintain it. Most of life is spent scraping the barnacles off the boat to make sure that we're taking good care of this free gift that Jesus has given. Make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This bond of peace, Plato used this word to refer to a bond that unites a city. First century Roman doctors used it to describe the body like ligaments bind bone to muscle. Christians are bound together by the Spirit. Now, what is the basis for that unity? We would hopefully all agree with that. Like, yes, that's the way God's called us to live. But on what basis is that unity? He's going to tell us in verse 4. And in verse 4, he says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So let's think about one body. The moment we put our faith in Christ, we became part of the body of Christ. We became part of the global church. There's no such thing in heaven as Australian Christians and, and English Christians and Japanese Christians. They're just Christians. 
And the issue for them back in this day were the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. He says, no, there's not like two groups in heaven. There's not two camps. It's just we are part of the body of Christ. There's one body. And then in verse 4, he says, one spirit. We have the same Holy Spirit as our brothers and sisters around the world have. There's not an American Holy Spirit and an African Holy Spirit. There's just one spirit. Just as you were called, there he goes again, referring to calling. Paul can't help himself. It just, it's, it's all stems from everything from chapters 1 through 3. We're called to one hope when you were called, one Lord. The word Lord was a common title used for Jesus in the first century. It refers to Jesus 20 times in the book of Ephesians. And many of them, if they had any access to the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, it was the Old Testament translated into Greek. And so they, they knew that every time in the Old Testament it referred to Jehovah or Yahweh, it was referring to Jesus. They were seeing Yahweh, Jehovah, in the flesh. And so they often called Jesus Lord. This is why in Romans chapter 10 it says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's one Lord. Now, the Bible tells us in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so we don't believe that all roads lead to heaven. We do believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven, which is why we work like we work and we do like we do to get the name of Jesus to the nations starting with our own city. There is one Lord. He continues. It says in verse 5, there's one faith. The word faith isn't referring to personal faith, but it's referring to the body of Christian doctrine found in the Word of God. If you're taking notes, you might write Jude 3 beside that verse. Jude 3 says, earnestly contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. It's referring to the body of Christian doctrine found in God's Word. It's the thing the church has believed for 2,000 years. Not new things, but this is the body of truth found and clearly taught in the Scriptures. Then he says there's one baptism. This is the one for our context that is hardest to understand because really in our day and age, even in the last hundred years, it seems that Satan has created a lot of division among God's people around baptism. You know, I learned this week that in the 1950s and 60s, I didn't know this, in the 1950s and 60s, many times in churches in the South, you had a baptism for African Americans and a baptism for whites. Can you imagine? I mean, even in the last hundred years in our country, that was the reality. But I found out they had the same issue in the first century. They had baptisms, baptismals for Jews who had converted to Jesus and baptismals for Gentiles who had converted to Jesus. Now, thankfully, we don't have those issues, at least here at Bible Center Church, maybe in our culture and places and pockets. But what we do often have is this great division over baptism. There's so many different methods and ways. Do you know that in the Bible, God never said, he never said, take the person, put one hand here, make sure they squeeze their nose and cover their nose. God, God never said, dip him backwards and then dip him. He never said that. Nowhere. 
right? A lot of what we do is by, by uh, deductive reasoning. We're trying to figure this out the best we can, what best pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But there's a lot of different ways the church around the world does baptism. A guy after the first service told me that he was baptized this way. He, he was baptized backwards for his past sins, and then he was baptized frontwards for all the sins he was going to commit in the future, right here in West Virginia, right? Some people are baptized face forward. Uh, some people are sprinkled. Some people are poured. Now, we're always, by God's grace, going to do baptism for people who are able to get in the water the way we do it, because I deeply believe it best reflects the death, burial, and resurrection. But guess what? If you were baptized as a Christian some other way, you put your faith in Jesus, and you were baptized after consciously putting your faith in Jesus and some other method, we are so glad you're part of our church, and you are welcome here. Because we are not going to make something that's supposed to be unifying so divisive. I love what David Jeremiah writes on this subject. There are several different baptismal practices in the church. Some sprinkle, some immerse, some baptize people of any age, some only adults. Some baptize three times. Wouldn't want to be part of that church. Once, in the once each in the names of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Contrary to the way it appears in the church, there really, though, only is one baptism. We are unified around the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus does something, which is a blessing in verse 7. Verse 7 tells us that in the middle of this unity, there's some diversity. Notice verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Paul tells us here that God has given us all this special grace, this unique grace. In context, he's talking about spiritual gifts. The grace of God that saves us from sin is the same grace that actually gives us spiritual gifts that helps us use our talents, our abilities, however you want to say it, under the power of the Holy Spirit for His good. Now, Pastor Mike and Pastor John, this Saturday, or Saturday the 22nd, are going to teach, I guess that's two weeks, are going to teach on spiritual gifts. If you're at all able to be here, you're going to want to be here. You can register on the app today. You can also stop by the Connect table. At the end of the morning, they're going to give you a test where you can actually, you don't have to turn it in for a grade. Some of you got nervous. Uh, it's, it's a way for you to determine what are my spiritual gifts. And those tests aren't totally, they're not conclusive, but they are helpful. They help you kind of just have some self-awareness about what you enjoy and how the Lord has wired you. There's two ways of looking at it. Some people teach that the moment you put your faith in Jesus, you're like zapped with spiritual lightning, and all of a sudden you get this spiritual gift, this, this gift you've never had before in your life. Now, maybe that's the way Pastor Mike and Pastor John will teach it. I don't know. I haven't seen their notes, but I don't think so. Most of the time, what you see, at least it's been my experience, is that God gives from birth because he knows all things. He's sovereign. He gives you abilities. He gives you talents. And the moment you put your faith in Jesus, who comes and lives inside you? The Holy Spirit. Jesus' Spirit himself. And so the Spirit of God takes what he already gave you in your mother's womb, and he supercharges that for the glory of Christ and the unification of the church. But I would invite you to check it out and see what your spiritual gifts might be. When did the spiritual gifts come? Verse 8. 
In verse 8, this is what it, why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to people. Now, verse 8 is a loose quotation from Psalm 68. We won't go too far here, but if you're looking at verses 8 through 10 and you're wondering what it's talking about, there are some, and if you've never heard this, you can ignore this part of the message, there are some who teach that verses 8 through 10 are talking about the time period between Jesus' death on the cross, his burial, and the time he rose again, those three days. And they'll tell you that this is talking about something that Jesus did during those three days. I've heard those opinions. Most scholars don't believe or teach that from this passage. If you want to learn more about that, you can go to 1 Peter chapter 3. That's a whole different discussion. This passage, rather, is teaching us about Christmas and Ascension Day. The day Jesus descended from heaven to be born on earth, and then the day, 40 days after his resurrection, when he ascended back into heaven. Look with me in verse 9. It says, What does he ascended mean that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Let's not miss the point of verse 10 in the middle of a controversial passage. If you take a different viewpoint from me on verses 8 through 10, it's totally cool. Totally cool. You can be right, wrong if you want to. It's totally all right. I don't mind. No. But the end of verse 10 is what we can be sure about. And that is the reason Jesus came was to bring unity to fill all things. That's why Jesus came. Sometimes in our individualized American culture, we're tempted to think that the reason Jesus came was just to save me from my sins. And while it's true that Jesus saves me from my sins, which were and are many, Jesus' ultimate purpose wasn't just for me. Colossians 1 and Ephesians 1 teach us that Jesus' purpose was to bring the entire universe back into harmony in restorative fellowship with God the Father. That's why Jesus died on the cross. And that's why we say the end of the gospel isn't me praying a prayer and going to heaven when I die. The end of the gospel story is when Jesus makes all things new, when he makes all things right. And so he says his purpose was to fill all things. Verses 11 through 16 are one continual sentence and so I'm just going to comment as we go through verses 11 through 16. He says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. These are leaders in the church. Why? To equip his people for works of service that the body of Christ may be built up. Our job as leaders, and we're so humbly thankful that you've allowed us to lead, is that not that we will be the only ones who are able to do the work of the ministry, but actually help and serve and equip you that you might do the work of the ministry. The highest calling of a Christian is simply to be a Christian. The highest calling is not a pastor or an elder. Actually, those of us that serve in those capacities are of a lower status, according to the New Testament. We're supposed to stoop lower than anybody. The highest calling is to be a Christian and to do the work of the ministry 
day in and day out where God has planted you. It says in verse 12, to equip his people for the works of service that the body of Christ might be built up. When is it complete? Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Verse 13 is job security for pastors. It really is. When are we done? It's when all of us, me included, reach the full measure, the fullness of Christ. Now, what does that mean? Think of the kid stretching his neck, being measured at your house, always wanting to, maybe that's an idea. But I learned this week that this word for the full measure of the stature of Christ was a Roman military term. And if you've ever, if you're like me, those two or three of you who love documentaries, you've seen how the Roman army will encircle their enemy, completely surround them. And once they've got them surround them and they cut the enemy supply lines, they face to the middle of the circle like spokes. And they all start marching to the middle of the circle until everybody inside either surrenders or fights to the death. That's this word in verse 13. To the full measure of the stature of Christ. He's saying... Make sure that you win the battle to full measure. So I like to picture it this way. The moment you put your faith in Christ, God essentially for you won the battle. I know that took place at Calvary 2,000 years ago, but for you is when you put your faith in Christ. But that moment isn't the end of your Christian life. It's just the beginning. We spend the rest of our lives allowing the Holy Spirit through the power of the Word of God and through the help of the church to come to the center of our lives and continue to take domination over areas where he is not yet in full control. Every time I think that I'm fully surrendered to Jesus, he shows me something else that I need to surrender. Are you like that at all? Like, Lord, I, I think I've finally grown. Where do you want me to grow? And then he just shows you how much more you have to grow. In verse 14, he says, Then we'll no longer be infants. Picking up on that walking theme. Infants need to learn to walk. Toddlers have to learn to walk. We'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, how are we going to combat this? He says in verse 15, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head, that is Christ. Now in the past, I have used verse 15 to say you need to speak the truth in love. And that's true. But that's actually not the context of verse 15. That's next Sunday, Ephesians, Ephesians 4.25. This verse isn't about you individually speaking the truth in love, although that's a good thing. This verse is about the strategy of the church. He is saying in verse 15, the way churches mature is through truthful gospel words being spoken in love. It's referring to the primacy of preaching and teaching. That's why here at Bible Center, we spend thousands of dollars on those booklets for you, you to get. And we have the app that you can download the, the, the booklet on the app. And, and we have preaching and teaching and environment sometimes all throughout the week and core classes and groups and Sunday groups. It's because God's word says that a word-centered ministry is the key to Christian maturity. It's not all we do, 
but it's a very important part of what we do. And in verse 16, he says, how do you know if the word is working? How do you know if the Bible teaching is working? Is it because you know a lot of verses? No. Is it because you can like count the 16 dispensations? If you know what I'm talking about, I'm sorry. But verse 16, from him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. How do we know the Bible teaching is working? Because we love one another unconditionally. That's when we know the Bible teaching is working. And so I've said all of that to come to one main point this morning. And I believe if we can get this one main point, it will revolutionize our church, our families, and our own Christian walk. Here it is. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. This phrase is at least 400 years old. Some believe it may even be older than 1,500 years old. No one knows for sure. We first find it in print on a German track from a Lutheran pastor at about 1627. Uh, but it could be older than that. But it's a beautiful phrase that sums up what Paul is trying to communicate in Ephesians chapter 4. Here's a few practical suggestions and we'll be done. Number one, let's turn up the volume on clearly revealed biblical truth held by the church for the last 2,000 years. Let's turn up the volume on clearly revealed biblical truth. How do churches like ours maintain this unity that so many of us are feeling? How do we maintain it for two years, three years, 10 years, 20, 30 years? How do we maintain it? It's by turning up the volume on the things we can be dogmatic about. That which is clearly taught in the Word of God. Things like the Gospel, things like salvation by grace through faith, the truth of the Trinity, Jesus being fully God and fully man, the deep truths of the church that the church has loved for 2,000 years, and we could go on and on. This is why I'm so excited for our elders right now. We've spent the last year and a half going through a membership statement of faith, and we're going to be rolling it out for your review and for your feedback and for your help. And what we've been working on is trying to find a document, find a way that we can major on the majors and make sure we're not majoring on the minors. What is it that someone should be required to believe to be a member at Bible Center Church? What is it that the church has believed for 2,000 years? Not what's 100 years old, not what's 50 years old, but what is age old that the church and Christians have believed. That's what we want to turn the volume up on. Number two, how can we pursue this kind of unity? Number two, through liberty. Let's turn down the volume on things not clearly revealed in the Bible and not held by the church for most of the last 2,000 years. If God's word isn't clear on an issue, you have the liberty to do what you feel best honors Jesus without making your preferences and opinions someone else's preference and opinion. These kind of issues that, that you have the freedom to have a personal opinion on without forcing others include your favorite music, forms of education, 
beverages that Christians should or should not drink, Bible translations, what movie Christians are allowed to watch or not allowed to watch, what Netflix shows you're allowed to watch and not allowed to watch, how we view the end times, the age of the earth, what jewelry men should wear, what jewelry men shouldn't wear, the length of a man's hair, the length of a woman's hair, what tattoos a Christian should have, what tattoos a Christian shouldn't have. All these things fall into this category. And in my 18 years of being a pastor, I have never seen a church argue over the doctrine of the Trinity. No one ever gets in a fight about those things. What we get in a fight about are the things I just mentioned. Someone says, this is a gospel issue, and they dig their heels in, and they make life miserable for everyone else. There, there's a list of verses in your notes. I would encourage you to read this week from 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. They so relate to this because Timothy was the pastor at the church at Ephesus. And when Paul warned Timothy to watch out, only if two or three times he warned him to watch out for heretics, that would be people who would teach something different than those gospel doctrines that the church has believed for 2,000 years. We've got to watch out for that. Most of the time, if you read through those verses in 1 and 2 Timothy, most of the time he warns Timothy to watch out for a church member in the pew or in the seat, whatever they sat on, who always wants to make an issue of their pet opinion or their pet persuasion. The kind of person that always wants to bring it up, always wants to fight about it, always wants to go fisticuffs over it. Paul warns Timothy in some very strong language, stand up to that man or that woman because it will spread like gangrene. He says, don't, if they want to have their opinion and their preference, that's great. But if the church hasn't taught it and believed it for 2,000 years, why in the world are we fighting over it? And so God reminds us to show liberty to one another. We don't have to agree. But finally and lastly, let's love one another more than we love being right. Let's love one another more than we love being right. If we're at odds with someone, we have two choices. Only two choices. Confront them or overlook it in Christian love. But a third choice of stewing on it, brewing over it, is never an option. Love covers a multitude of sins. You can look over it, or you can confront it, but you can't stew over it. Why does the Bible teach these things? Why is this so important? It's because in essentials, there's unity. In non-essentials, there's liberty. And in all things, there's charity. Once again, Thank you for joining us this week. We look forward to serving you in next week's podcast, along with our weekend services every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m.